Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Arthur Snell. A major war is taking place on the European continent with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, bringing you a series of special episodes to help you understand the crisis as it unfolds. This is Doomsday Watch. Welcome back to Doomsday Watch. We hope you're finding these war bulletins valuable. A quick reminder that you can support our work on the crowdfunding app Patreon from as little as £3 per month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the link in the show notes. Hello and welcome back to Doomsday Watch. Last week we held a live Zoom call for our Patreon supporters with the brilliant Alexander Clarkson, who's an academic at King's College and a massive expert on Europe, on security issues and on Ukraine. This is a shortened version of the audio from that session. If you want access to similar events in the future, all of our previous Patreon-exclusive content and regular email bulletins from me, search Patreon Doomsday Watch and become a supporter of the podcast. So, Alexander, welcome to Doomsday Watch. Hi, thank you. Let's start off with just sort of the war as it is. What's your sense on where we're at now? With, with this kind of evolution of, of Russia's tactics, but also the Ukrainians themselves having surprised the world, if not you, because I think you've been following Ukrainian military much more closely, but they've surprised a lot of other people with their staying power. I think I'm thinking to go back to that, the first thing I would always say is don't underestimate the Ukrainians. And that has been actually a problem with analysis um, for uh, for eight years, uh, possibly for 30, I think, for maybe for slightly separate reasons. Um, so first of all, this is something we've beca- had to adjust to is the idea of war between states. So I think in the previous podcast, I pointed out that we tended to, before the war, kind of think this, you know, there was a lot of analysis that this was going to be an insurgency, that state was going to collapse, and then we have some quasi-Iraq situation, which was just mis- just just did not understand the resilience of the Ukrainian state, the extent to which Ukrainian society and all its kind of asterisk village-like uh, you know, everybody fights each other, but it's like a family. Everybody fights each other relentlessly. Once attacked, everybody tends to unite, particularly after the Maidan uprising in 2014. So the Ukrainians are going to put up a fight. And Ukrainians now, by showing that they can win, and I mean that the first two weeks were crucial, showing that they were willing to fight. That's week one. Week two, showing that they could inflict damage on the, on the Russians in a way that, that, that demonstrated skill. And I think that, so you, so you, one thing saying that you're willing to fight, the other second question is, are you, can you fight like a modern state? And I think those two questions were answered in the first two, three weeks. And once that happens, it always looks better to be a bit of a winner, to draw uh, uh, attention and support and, uh, from European EU and, and NATO partners. So what we have now is a classic state-on-state conflict. I think I also in the original podcast mentioned the Serbia-Croatia example, we can think of the Iran-Iraq war. We can think of Vietnam versus China 1979. These are all classic conflicts. I mean, obviously, the Yugoslav civil war started as a civil war and became state-on-state wars as they evolved over 91 and 92. Um, that take, they, 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 they go on for a long while, right? Because states can mobilize enormous resources 
Uh, they have power of taxation. They have st structured ministries. They have a, a, you know, command and control. They have a clear hierarchy. They have international legitimacy. Um, and in, in the case of Ukraine, though, I think the question with Russia is still open. There's a lot of commentary about how much Russians support the campaign. Though, interestingly, the Russian state always stops short of mobilize, national mobilization, which is an interesting sign of what the limits of that support might be. I mean, both states can, you know, mobilize enormous amounts of troops and enormous amounts of equipment at this point. So it's going to be it's going to be a level of carnage that we haven't been accustomed to since the 1980s or the 1990s in the, in the Yugoslav case. That's the first point. Second point, it's not just about the Donbass. I'm just about Donbass. We have northern Kharkiv, so that's still a battlefield. Battlefield with Ukraine is in more of an advantage. And there's the south. They stormed across from Crimea as well. So we always think of the east and the north, but there's the, the, the battlefield in the south is very important, particularly with what's happening in Transnistria right now. And there the Ukrainians have a bit more of an advantage, but it'll be much slower than a lot of people expected. But I think they'll gradually grind the Russians down over time. Leaves us with, us, with, with Donbass itself. The, the Russians are making progress on Donbass. But the progress they're making is at an enormous price because the Ukrainians are just fighting back with all the again all the power and resources and artillery and tanks and discipline and training of a of a modern army, of one of the best armies in Europe. We have the two best army. You know, you have one of the best armies in Europe fighting an army in Russia that people thought was the best army in Europe, but has turned out to have a lot more structural problems. Though they, a lot of them are situative as much as chronic. There's a lot of chronic problems with the Russian military that are long term. There are problems specifically with the way they started this war, which means. I don't think they're going to be in very much in an advantage because it's very difficult to unscrew something that's screwed up. I think you, from your own yeah. professional experience, will know that. Yeah. Whether Russia will be this bad in the next war is, I think, a separate question we have to have. Because the next war, they will have had time to look back at this and plan and restructure and engage. Right now, though, they are in, a, in not a great place. And what's simply keeping them there is the simple size of the resources and that initial shock. All the territory the Russians have now is what they took in the first two weeks of the war. Right, and all the other gains they've made are since then around Izium in particular, incremental, Kamina and some, some other places, Popasna, have been small incremental sort of Verdun 1915 style gains. Right, so the yeah. open question I think we're faced now is the Ukrainians will just keep fighting because it's existential for them, and they can mobilize these keep mobilizing these resources. The question is, is when does the Russian army start to break? As they lose troops and equipment, can they take something substantial before they break? Because they will break if they do not mobilize nationally. Right, and if they break, can they hold on to what they hold when they break, or will, does that is it a repeat of what we saw in northern Ukraine? My my hunch is is that they'd lose territory probably west of the Dnieper. That's some that's like a bonus for them. It's like a bonus round. They'd fight much harder to hold what they have east of the Dnieper. They're willing to I think lose territory around Kharkiv city because that's gone. They're not going to get that. But I think the further east you go, the more they're going to willing be willing to throw resources as much as possible as they can to for it. What we have here basically is, and again, you'll hate me from my historical analogies, is is a, is 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 a is a declining imperial power fighting a great colonial war against a modern European nation state fighting a total war. But because Russia is that bigger bigger bit bigger than Ukraine, Russia can keep that going for a while. But after a certain point. If the Russians don't cash in their chips, which they could, which would be the diplomatically smart move, frankly, um, they're going to run into serious trouble. Then, And then a whole set of scenarios begin to emerge that we have not thought through, because we've always thought about this as Russia being in the advantage. What happens if Ukraine is in the advantage? And final, terrible, I'm terrible with my historical analogies, but final story was 1967, Israel Arab war. One of the things is we always look back to 1967 as the war. Was, ah, yeah, of course Israel was going to win. All the structural reasons were there. If you read the books and the newspaper articles before 1967, everybody rated the Egyptian army. 
1967 was such a shock because people didn't think the Israelis could really pull. They kind of think, ah, there's also a lot of anti-Semitism. Like, oh, can they really pull this kind of thing off? They pulled it off. But nobody had really played out the scenarios for if they win. And a lot of the problems that arose afterwards, however much Israel probably had a moral right to fight for survival at that point, came from the fact that people hadn't really anticipated them winning that well. So I think we also have to both game out uh, a Russia stays in there and grinds and keeps going scenario. We have to start thinking about what happens if the Russians lose. Yeah. Right? And we have to really start thinking about that seriously because both have to be managed. You know, the EU and the US are very bad at plan A and plan B. Yes. Again, you, might, you probably know that from your own experience. Well, yeah, we, we've yeah. seen some of that. But certainly, yes, when a major imperial power loses a war in a big way, as, as you will know, and as lots of historical examples tell us, it creates serious crises back at home. And, and in yeah. a way, that's, that's what we're hinting at here. Let's talk a bit about Europe, uh, France and Germany, inevitably. So, of course, when we spoke before, we didn't know uh, who was going to be the next president of France, although probably we, we could have both had a pretty solid idea. Uh, and we were trying to get our heads around what Zeitenwender really means for Germany, this historical turning point. Um, so perhaps starting with Germany, there, there, there's been a bit of a sort of wobble, it seems, that, you know, Olaf Scholz made an amazing speech and said, this is, everything's changed, the, the world will never be the same again. And now everyone's saying, OK, but when is Germany going to do the thing? Now, is that just what is a major change for a very important country just taking a long time? Or is it a slight kind of reluctance to really grapple with what they what they said they were going to do? I think as you've noticed on Twitter, I've also written a piece about it. I mean, a lot of this, I am, I have a personal, and I think a lot of people who do what I do have a deep frustration with a particular um, strand of policymaking within the Social Democratic Party in particular. Though the Tzedio Tseyosu was also culpable. But the difference, I think, between the Tzedio Tseyosu and the SPD is the Tzedio Tseyosu, under Merkel, the Tseyosu was just pretty hard-nosed, right? They saw this as cheap energy. We need to keep Russia stable. Because remember, a lot of these German policies that we now look back as failed came from a different intellectual moment. They came from a moment in the 1990s. I mean, a lot of what we see now in terms of Russian elites, insecurity and fear, I mean, these are people who went through October 1993, which was the was the quasi-civil war in Moscow. And then, of course, the, the defeat in the, effectively, the defeat in the first Chechen war. Yeah. 94, and both are interconnected because the yeah. state was in such chaos, yeah. right? It was also in a moment where actually, in 94 is also interesting in Ukrainian history because that was an election where the loser, Leonid Kravchuk, just followed the democratic rules and handed over power to Kuchma. So you can see that this is the diversion. You can already mm. see the different political cultures. So, you know, in that from that context, the Tidio Tseyosu thought, okay, we have to build these strong links with Russia to stabilize Russia, which is something we might have to be thinking about in a couple of years' time as well. But the SPD has a much more longer-term sort of sentimental attachment to the idea of, of dialogue and, and trade, that you can sort of make countries more democratic through strong trading links. Yeah. Um, this notion of dialogue, this notion of a special relationship between Germany and Russia, it goes back to, to that kind of uh, ospolitic, idealistic yeah. ospolitic of the SPD left, that's Willy Brandt, you know, 1970s. And then you have a kind of hard-nosed part of the SPD that believes that, you know, you can foster reform, but you have to be realistic and that states have to be cohesive before they can become more progressive. And that's the Helm Helmut Schmidt notion. The Helmut Schmidt notion often, who's also a senior SPD chancellor for the 1970s, 1980s, 
the Helmut Schmidt idea was, though, we have to work together with these strong men to help make the state strong. So he's a love, great fan of Deng Xiaoping, mm. right? Uh, you know, he negotiates with all these you know, hardcore regimes in Eastern Europe. Uh, later on, he thinks Putin is okay because he stabilized and saved the Russian state, right? So you have this kind of thinking. It goes a long way back in the SPD. And however much I think Zeitenwende will happen, these are deep problems in that party. And yeah. it's going to take a while for them to work that out. And I was going to ask about the economic factor, because, of course, one thing that Germany is incredibly good at is making things that everyone in the world needs to buy, whether it's, you know, Mercedes cars or machine tools or, you know, all kinds of other, uh, you know, manufactured goods. And how much of this is, is not just politics, but, but pure sort of mercantilism? It is. I mean, there's a strong mercantilist streak. I think the problem when you're dealing with, particularly the Social Democrats, but also to a lesser extent the CDU CSU, the CDU CSU, because of its strong Atlanticism, yes. this is also the FDP, which is a liberal party, which is in the coalition. Yeah. However much they are also mercantilistic in outlook, and we're strongly committed to the relationship with Russia. Both are far more susceptible to this to when the Americans and the and the French and under a different prime minister, even the British or the Italians come in and say, "Look, this is an alliance thing, right? This, this needs to switch." They can move. The SPD has that mercantilism. I'm from Lower Saxony. Lower Saxony is Volkswagen country. Yeah. Right? I, I breathed and grew up in a profoundly mercantilistic, opaque, like a lot of it works really well. We've got great streets and a very prosperous place. And it's a great place oh. to raise your kids, Hanulfer. But it's also built on opaque deals between trade unions and corporations and, and kind of a tolerance. Like the province of Lower Saxony, the government has a 25% stake in Volkswagen. Yeah. It's like that, right? So you have this kind of environment in which, you know, suddenly getting cheap gas from Russia becomes a kind of existential thing. Business leaders have an attachment. They didn't separate these things out, right? So we always say, is it corrupt? And because I also knew the Germans would inevitably hand the tanks over. Yeah. But to do this in such an excruciatingly, terribly communicated way, the SPD talking to itself. I mean, I, in a sense, I don't like the FTP at all, but thank God it's in the, in the government. I'm a green guy. Thank God they're in the government because they're kind of saving the communicative yes. face of, of, of the German state at the moment. And the odd thing in a way is that, I mean, it feels like, you know, they will get there in the end and, and maybe they'll get there quite, you know, reasonably quickly. But as you say, it's the communication they've made that they've laid themselves open to the charge of being the sort of the weakest link. Which made me so angry. It's unnecessary. It yes, was so obvious what, what Schultz needed to do. And it's not even entirely his fault. He has to manage this party that's squabbling yeah. over this. Yeah. But what really got me is you have these patriarchal, and I know this is a public thing, but patriarchal old farts. Who I know back from growing up in Lower Saxony, these are the guys when I was 20 and a student who would just sort of, you know, they're, they're as bad as the local SPD city councilman wag the finger at you saying, oh, you green you idealists, you know, we know how the world works. And you're like, no, 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 no. I'm half Ukrainian as well. So, oh, Ukrainians. Uh. And you'd be sort of like, no. And you know what? The greens were right. Yes. The idealists were the realists and the realists were at a lateral tangential link to reality. And I think in a sense, there's a sense of frustration over the, all these years looking at this because yeah. it was obvious by 2014, even 2008, where this was going to go. Yeah. Well, we've, we've talked about Germany. We should talk briefly about France, but I'm, I'm conscious we, we want to get on to questions as well. So we're, let's, let's motor through France. I mean, mm. I suppose that the, my quick question on France is, does uh, having got through an election change the calculus on Ukraine for Macron? In, in a way, maybe it doesn't. I mean, he was already committed to a certain path. 
Uh, or, or do you think we're going to see a, a big a big sort of evolution of, of Macron's style? I, I think Macron is going to do two things. He's going to try to maintain dialogue with Putin. He needs to do that for a domestic audience to show that he's trying everything. Yeah. However, one shouldn't. There tends to be, in the, particularly in the British press, a tendency to overestimate the extent to which the French have a sentimental attachment to Russia. Yeah. The French stance to Russia was always, we're still a big player because we have a separate dialogue with Russia. But when the chips are down, they tend to always side with the West, even under de Gaulle, even after he leaves the, the military portion of NATO and all the rest. Yeah. Right. In the end, there's a second thing to keep in mind that that the, the Russians have backed Le Pen very clearly, and and Macron made a huge deal of that in the election. The final thing with both Italy and France is the Russians are causing them trouble for five eight years in the Sahel region and in Libya, and that should also not be underestimated. There are a lot of people in the French security services. Who they feel? I mean, there's a long story about the French who needed to ship arms to a, a leader that they were backing, and they approached the Russians. They thought the Russians would just ship the arms, and the Russians then turned the guy. There's a lot of anger about that. The Italians backed the opposites with the Italians working together with the Turks because Libya this is a complicated the, place. the Libya thing where, but yeah, Italy and their and enemy is Wagner, the Russians, yeah. right? The, the Russians are causing them trouble, and they're in oil fields where the Italians want them out. And the Russian, the Russian mercenaries are now are part of a kind of a, a attempt with a local military cabal in Mali that have tried to toss the Russian, the French and Europeans out. And the Russians are involved in war crimes there and mass executions of Fulani tribesmen who have a vague affiliation. Ice. And the, so there are a lot of people in France who would really like to pay them back. Yes, I think that you know the British press spectators like, oh, the French tons are soft. They're not soft. They're pragmatic. But when their interests, particularly in Italy, any's interests, the oil majors' interests gets crossed, then they will pay it back. And I think what I really struggle to understand is, yes, it was a play to be a global player and all the rest. But all of these Russian moves in Africa were not strategically necessary for Russia. They were an ego trip. And in the end, they have caused Russia a lot of unnecessary enemies for very little gain. And in the end, they will have done a lot more to turn the Italians and the French against Russia probably even in the invasion of Ukraine. And that is something that needs to be paid attention more by Anglosphere, whatever you call uh, yeah. penetrating analysis. The Ukrainians know. You could, there are a lot of Ukrainian interests in Africa for complicated reasons I won't mm -hmm. get into. The Ukrainians know exactly what's going on there. And they play and they work on that as well. Let's talk very briefly about Transnistria. Now, uh, we've got a very well-informed audience, but if any people are, haven't quite got up to speed with that, Transnistria is a breakaway stretch of Moldova, which only exists because... Uh, the Russians find it useful to uh, sort of undermine Moldova's security by letting this kind of fake country have a have a sort of Potemkin existence. Uh, but it feels as if the Russians, they can't win a war in the field against the Ukrainians. But what we know they are good at is destabilization uh, and creating a casus belli. So uh, in, in sort of a minute, what, what's your take on what's happening in Transnistria and why does it matter? I think if the Russians think they can start something in Transnistria in the way of like the Transnistrian militias or army thing coming up in the... Then I think a lot of the war with Ukraine has been built around a Russian misreading of Ukraine, a fundamental Russian misreading of Ukraine, and, and questions about how, what the information Putin and his inner circle are getting. And you could say the same thing for Transnistria. The Transnistrian elite is quite happy with things as they are. Like another decade, if things had been left alone, it would be like Andorra or Liechtenstein. Right. None of those little eccentricities, and everybody gets along, and the EU has this side deal with the Transnistrians. It's all fine. So you have these blasts. So obviously they're trying. To be, it's also, I think, a move of desperation by Moscow because things aren't working elsewhere. So they yeah. want to sort of distract Ukraine and drive things forward. But if they think they can really get the transition population that just wants quiet, like they like their kind of little statelet, and it's a bit of an identity, but they also all have Moldovan passports. You know, they they have access to the EU through Moldova's 
treaty through a complicated deal between the both sides. It's not recognized because it's Moldovan territory. The EU accepts everything from Transnistria as an export from Moldova officially, and it works fine for everyone. So the, the, the worrying thing for me is like the Russians can always find a couple of people in Transnistria to do what they want. Russia will try to destabilize this. And so that's why we need EU and NATO diplomats and focus. And Sam Green said two months ago that we needed to flood Moldova with cash. Yes. And be talking to Transnistrians behind the scenes to keep these things calm. Yeah. Because even a mild destabilization can cause enormous trouble yeah. to everyone that we don't need and cause horrific harm to people who really on both sides of that river just want to be left alone. Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial. The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. This is not a trial. This is not a, an act of criminality. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. This is the story of his first week in court told through the transcripts. Listen now to the slow newscast wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get on to the questions. Um, well, I'm going to start with with a really big question, which is Stephen Welling, who has asked, what are the chances of escalation and Third World War? Oh, Jesus. Um, <laughs> in, like, in five words or less. Five words or less. I mean, I think, look, I think a lot of the Third World War talk, I mean, if the Russians move to a tactical nuke, they've lost. Like, this is where we have to think about what happens if Russia really, really loses, because that's when that comes out. Yes. So this is right. the planning ahead that you were talking about. Planning but... ahead about Russia losing. Russia doesn't drop nukes when it's winning. Russia drops nukes when it's losing. And I think also the other thing is, is that this is a question like, so say the Ukrainians have cleared out Kazan. Maybe they won't, but maybe they do. Let's just, this is a 10% scenario. You know, and if they clear out that bit of Kazan, then the Russians will really have fallen apart. You know, and you have a Ukrainian unit commander thinking, you know what, maybe we can cross over to the Crimean side. You know, fuck them. Let's do it. And that's where you need to have people on the phone to Kiev saying no. And there'll be a lot of people Kiev at the top of the command saying, no, but you have to have that line to the Ukrainians saying, we know, but no. I think the talk of nuke in World War III, the World War III talk was a very specific language. That I think was just some 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 mind gamery on 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 the Germans and, and the rest. I don't think the Russians are, I mean, I, I this is the thing, we, Putin is in La La Land, who knows? But my I think my hunch is, I don't, the Russians are not going to trigger World War III. They're not suicidal. They're not going to do it even over Ukraine. They're going to do it if anybody crosses into Russian territory. Talking about the sort of the weapons piece, are there things that we shouldn't be giving them that, you know, are sort of on the cards or, or are we getting this about right? I think there's one system I'd be wary of. I'm half Ukrainian and I have family there and I want them to get everything. But if I try to remove myself emotionally from that position, I would struggle if the West supplied them with uh, medium to long range ballistic systems that can reach beyond what's the 300 mile was the him system was 300 kilometers so that's reached beyond say kaluga or or rust like anything that reaches moscow that reaches heavily into russian territory yeah. yeah i think the thing is we have to keep in mind this is and again i one of the things that angered me so much about the analysis building up to this is, is it described ukraine as if it was some sort of hick state uh and if i was in the ukrainian relationship i'd be very careful about developing it you know, because that that's, again, that kind of you turn something that's OK, this is about a fight for Ukrainian territory. And if Russia loses, like the French losing Algeria, humiliating and disastrous, and you have all this mess at home to you give the Ukraine stuff that can hit Moscow and the other temptation is there. So I think I think that was where I would be careful. 
I want to sort of think a bit about sort of regional players in the war. I'm trying to sort of group together. We've got loads of questions. I'm trying to sort of group them together a bit. Um, on the one hand, you've got you've got Poland, and they arguably have sort of been warning about the the Russian threat for a long time. Now that might be because of a kind of personal animosity uh, about you know what happened to to former Prime Minister Kaczynski in in the plane crash and the persistent sort of conspiracy theories around that. And then on the other hand, you've got uh, states that Russia wants to treat as client states, places like Kazakhstan, Georgia, which of course Russia occupies parts of, neither of which have sort of delivered for Russia. What's your take on, uh, first on kind of Russia's uh, diplomacy with its sort of natural allies or, or, or the ones that the countries that it feels it should have it as its allies, and then perhaps those sort of frontline NATO states, Poland, Baltic states, and so on? I think that every day the Russians get more of their troops killed and more of their equipment destroyed in Ukraine, their grip on the rest of the former Soviet space weakens. And of all the people I think who are very aware of this, it's Kazakhstan. Think back to January 6th. So there's this, this, there's this kind of riots, there's this collapse of order in major cities in Kazakhstan, and which is also coupled with a power battle within the Kazakh elite. Yep. And in the end, Tokayev, the, the president, just kind of realizes that he needs somebody to come in to stabilize places so he can just get order. And he calls the Russians in versus something called the CSTO, which is a kind of a regional thing, a security organization under Russian control. Now, interestingly now, only three months later, the Kazakhs have shown the Russians no support in this war. They've sent aid to the Ukrainians. And now they're running military maneuvers along Kazakhstan's border just to signal the Russians that, you know, don't try it with us either. So within three months, the entire relationship between Kazakhstan and Russia has been transformed. Yeah. I also think long term, say Russia gets into serious trouble, either in the near or medium term future. Say, say that you have a scenario as in the 1990s or worse, if Putin mm. goes, because Putin's the, the state the state is brittle. Yeah. It's a coup proof state, which is a real problem because all these factions hover around each other and only Putin holds together the center. Yeah. We will need a strong Kazakhstan and hopefully a more democratic Kazakhstan. And the potential mm. is there in that society for that. Yeah. To because um, again this this condescension this, Kazakhstan is a highly developed really great intelligentsia strong state you know these are people you can work with and and you need Kazakhstan to be strong because if Russia's ability to stabilize Central Asia falls away you need someone else yes and, and Kazakhstan be, is the natural is player it? in the region yeah and yeah. so I think that in terms of the Eastern European uh, NATO states I mean the reactions were obvious Georgia's in a very very weak position yes it's internally divided. Uh, I, its leadership is scared as much as compromised towards Russia. I think, and, and I understand after the trauma of 2008, you've got to have some understanding for the position they're in. Zakashvili is a disaster zone. That's my personal opinion. And, and it's, so that, you know, paralyzes the opposition. Armenia and Azerbaijan, Armenia is in a terrible, terrible position. It's a terrible position. It's dependent on Russia and it's not reliable. And the Azeri regime, however much they're our friend at the moment, because of gas, that is a nasty dictatorship. And, and you have to worry where that goes. The Eastern European NATO states, just and including Finland and Sweden, and they're going to join NATO now, that's clear. They react in the obvious way, particularly, I think, not just Poland, I think the two key actors there are Romania and Poland. Yes. Right? And and they're they're the ones really holding the ring and driving things forward. And I think the interesting question that you now face is, is there is a rule of law crisis in Poland. But Poland is now also clearly the indispensable EU state with Romania, the two yeah. of them. And then now Finland, you know, and, and it's and... it's fascinating the way that I found that yeah. fascinating way it plays out because obviously Hungary, uh, I mean, one could argue that Hungary's gone further down the rule of law 
um yeah. sort of well completely yeah but still you know poland poland is is not cool but but because of you know it's an example of how in crisis you for very pragmatic reasons you you don't make a big deal of poland's rule of law infractions because there's something else more important happening but also in the end even the national conservative element of the polish elite does not want to leave the eu yes I mean, that's really key. And they are loyal to NATO to a hilt. Yes. And for all the rule of law issues that we have to deal with, right, but we do need to differentiate between Hungary and Poland that for all the damage being done can still, will still move and still do the right thing geopolitically. Yes. I'm conscious of the time. We've gone through some really great questions. I'm sorry there's some we might not have touched on. Alexander, is there anything that we haven't asked that you think we should talk about in the last couple of minutes? I don't want to talk about Brexit. <laughs> I think I, th- I think I, I do think that there's a lot of shenanigans going around that. I think what's yeah. fascinating about this is an aside is the extent to which this all of what's happened in the last two two years has made that feel like a debate from another age. And I think yes. a lot of this Britain's positioning in this has made me very much more optimistic that there will eventually be a pragmatic relationship and we can all get on with our lives without talking about that all the time. Yeah. I think more broadly though, what worries me about this, I'll I'll say very briefly. Yes. So I've been doing what I've been doing for a long time. I work on uh, two halves. My research is in two halves. I partly work on the history of diasporas in Germany and Europe, and part, half, the other half has the militarization of the EU's border system. And what links the two has been a number of different crises around the EU that have been evolving the last 15 years. And I, I remember you know, looking at the Ukrainian parliamentary election of 2012, and a lot of people like, eh, getting worried. It's a bit more corrupt than usual. Yanukovych, what's he doing with the Russians? Huh, something's bad. And the Russians are really meddling much more than usual. This is, this is, this something's wrong. And you would talk to people. So I had a similar feeling, for example, from the other work I did on the diaspora front about, you know, how the buildup of refugees within Syria, you know, in 2012 was also, this, this is bad. This is, you know, things are building up, you know, after a certain critical mass, you have internal displaced persons, displaced persons. You'll, you'll know this as well, you know, at a certain point, there's overspill and it's going to have eventually at the EU. And you talk to people and they're like, no, but we have the Eurozone crisis now and we have the Arab uprisings and there's stuff going on in Egypt, you know, with Morsi, you know. And and there's other things, China, etc. So there's always some other problem that was bigger, particularly the eurozone crisis. And then it's like the EU and the UK is kind of part of that. Can only ever focus on one crisis at once. Yep. We've been spent the whole time discussing Ukraine. There are things building up in North Africa, in Tunisia under Kais Said, uh, in Algeria. There's Morocco, less so Libya anyway. We need to be able to look at more more than one crisis at a time. And I think for the EU in particular, Turkey, obviously, but that's, you know, but particularly North Africa and particularly what's happening in Tunisia. Tunisia is as strategically important to the EU as Ukraine is. And that's very, very, very strategically important. And we need to learn to be able to geopolitically as a great power, which the EU is becoming, and UK as its core partner, which it will become, to both work together to keep our eye on two things at the state time. The Americans can more or less do that. Yeah. But the Americans are used to doing that. We have to learn to do that. Because what we're going to keep doing is we're focused now on Ukraine. We weren't focused in 2012. And then people were surprised in, in when Maidan happened. It wasn't surprising if you were watching what's going on. People were surprised when the Russians went nuts. Well, that was a bit more surprising, but not quite, because if you've been watching what's going on. Because we were all looking at the Eurozone crisis. People were surprised by the migration crisis. Anybody watching Syria knew this is, this is going to go wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, and then... We're going to be surprised by North Africa if we don't go and move in there really, really quickly yep. and act in support of civil society and democratization and people trying to keep Kais Saeed from becoming this dictator. And we need to do much more with the Beba and what's happening in Libya. And it was a, it's a shameful moment for British and French and European foreign policy, how we just sort of ambled off in 2011, left leaving the Italians and the Tunisians and Algerians holding the bag. 
Yeah. You know, and the French then came back in a really destructive way, wrecking EU consent, all that stuff. We owe them as well. Yeah, yeah. We owe the Algerians. We owe Hirak and civil society down there. So if I'm going to make a speech about this, I'm simply saying we have to start being able to, to handle two problems at once. Because because if we're always only looking at the problem just in front of us, the one just down the road is going to then knock us off tra- track again just, as one, just, just when we stabilize the, the, the problem that we've just faced. Well, uh, that is a brilliant point to finish because, one, it speaks to the whole kind of concept behind Doomsday Watches, who's trying to look at loads of different stuff and see how it's all connected. But the other thing it speaks to is that if anybody here doesn't follow Alex on Twitter, you really should, because one day he's going to tweet about Transnistria, next day he's going to tweet about Algeria, and it's all connected together. Because it's the EU connected. I hope you enjoyed that. If you'd like more content such as this, search Patreon Doomsday Watch to join our Doom community for as little as £3 a month before it's too late. We hope you find these war bulletins valuable amongst the huge amount of information out there, so don't forget to subscribe and help spread the word by rating us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other app that has ratings. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.